0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Last week, we covered the birth of Jesus and the various things that Matthew might have been trying to accomplish whenever he shared the specific details that he included in his narrative of that story, and we got to talk about really the birth of Jesus from what I would almost argue is Joseph's perspective. Uh, If you were to go read the Gospel of Luke, we didn't really talk about this in the last video, but if you go look at the Gospel of Luke, you almost seem to have things being told more from Mary's perspective, whereas the account that we read last week, Is more from joseph's perspective and we get to see how he is caught up in the middle of this whole crazy situation where his virgin betrothed wife is pregnant and he has to figure out what to do about it and he's going to quietly divorce her because he knows that they have not slept together yet because they have not been officially married uh but then an angel appears to him and says hey This is actually legit, and this is what's really going on here, and it's actually from the Holy Spirit, and this child is actually going to be the Messiah who's going to basically save everybody from their sins. And that's where we kind of left things off with Jesus uh, being born to Mary and Joseph, and we talked about how he is, by means of being the adopted son of Joseph, the royal heir to David's throne and as a result of that we're going to be heading directly into chapter two picking up right where we left off last week and we're going to see how jesus being the royal heir of david's throne is going to immediately cause some political turmoil in the region of israel even though Jesus himself hasn't done anything yet. And so, let's head into chapter two. We're covering the entire chapter today. Uh, And then next week, what we're going to do, and I already kind of mentioned this, next week what we're gonna do is we're gonna specifically be taking a look at how Matthew is using prophecies throughout chapters one and two, and specifically what he means whenever he says Jesus is fulfilling them. In this video, we're just going to be going through the narrative and trying to understand Matthew's main point, but then next week we'll actually look at the prophecies in particular in their original context and try to understand if there's more depth we can get out of them. All right, so chapter two, beginning in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. All right, so right off the bat, if you were reading straight from the Old Testament, flipped the page and got to the New Testament, these verses right here would probably make you a little bit confused uh, because if you remember the history of Israel, there was this kingdom that was established whenever King Saul was made king and then David came after him and then Solomon came after him. But then after Solomon, the kingdom got split in two and it was divided into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And eventually the northern kingdom was captured by the Assyrians and they went off and never came back. And then the southern kingdom... They went off whenever they were captured by the Babylonians, and then after a short time of exile, they came back and re-established the nation of Israel. However, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you'll have noticed that there is no king sitting on the throne of Israel. And even though God made this promise to David that eventually his heir would reign eternally, that kind of is put in question by the end of the old testament and that's why god starts sending a lot of prophets to just reassure the people that yes the messiah will sit on the throne but then if you flip from the end of malachi if you're reading the christian old testament and you're flipping from malachi and you flip the page and you go to matthew and you get to chapter two all of a sudden you're hearing about this guy named king herod and you're gonna be very confused because you're saying wait a second hold up i thought that there was no king in israel at this time period Well, there kind of is, but what you need to know about Herod is that he's not like an official king of Israel. He is somebody who the Romans have appointed to be king of Israel, but really he's almost like a Roman governor of the whole land. Uh, He's actually Idumean, right? So he's from the region of uh, Edom, which is near Israel, but he himself is not actually descended from David or anything like that. So whenever we think of King Herod, You need to realize that this is a guy who has been appointed as a king by the Romans, but he doesn't himself have any legitimate claim to the throne. And as a result of that, whenever we look at history, we see that Herod was a very insecure and power-hungry individual who was willing to do whatever it takes to stay in power. Uh, So much to the point where people say that it was actually better to be King herod's pigs than to be his sons because the thing is herod he followed the kosher food laws and he didn't eat any pigs but you know what He didn't mind killing a son or two if he felt that his son was a threat to his power. And so King Herod is a vile, terrible individual. And it makes sense why Matthew at this point in the story would zoom out from Bethlehem, go a few miles over to Jerusalem and see how King Herod responds to this information. Because King Herod is a power-hungry dude. And if there's another person showing up in the nearby vicinity who is the king of the Jews, This is a big problem for Herod. And so we see that even before Jesus has done anything, he is already sending political statements just by nature of being born. And so after he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, we read that this was in the days of Herod the king. And if you know anything about Herod the king, you're like, oh, hmm, how is he going to respond to this? And behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying where is he who has been born king of the jews for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him all right so this gets even more complicated because now you see that there are these gentile kings who have gotten up from wherever they live way over in the east they have gotten up and they have come all the way to jerusalem in search of this king there are so many questions about this first off How did they know that this King was coming? It it would seem to suggest that in some way, these Gentile kings and these Gentile royalty and these Gentile noblemen, these Magi, in some way, they are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and they know the Jewish scriptures and they know that there is going to be this promised King who is ultimately going to show up and rule over the people and they seem to understand this to such a degree that they realize that this king isn't just a normal king he is a king that deserves even their homage right this child has simply been born and they say we wanted to show up and give him things we want to give him gifts this is very very interesting and really if I'm just being entirely honest, it's something that perplexes me, and it's perplexed a lot of scholars as well. People will look at the book of Numbers, where there's this one reference to a star shining in Israel, uh, and it was a foreign person who was prof- prophesying about that, the guy named Balaam. They will look at the book of Numbers, and then they'll also look at the book of Daniel, and they'll try to kind of explain how these magi would have come to this knowledge But really, it is kind of a head-scratcher where we just really don't fully know how they came to know this. But the thing is, they seem to know this even to a better degree than we do, because apparently they saw some sort of star. And whenever they saw that star they received that as confirmation that this child had been born and they followed the star all the way to the land of israel and people will once again they'll start wondering what was this star and they'll start searching the heavens and they'll look at like all these astronomical signs to figure out uh, what exactly this star was that they followed and i've got a sneaking suspicion that whenever we read star here we're not supposed to be thinking of a normal star that is like in the sky like in the heavens uh mainly because I mean, there's plenty of stars in the sky and I wouldn't be able to follow that and figure out where it was leading me because it's, you know, they're so far away. Like, it's not like a star in the heavens does not like hover over one place. Whenever I read this, I'm led to believe that this was sort of a miraculous occurrence directly instituted by God, where God allowed them to see this star very similar to maybe what the Israelites saw whenever they were following the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire in the wilderness, Uh, i'm inclined to think that maybe it's something along those lines where they saw something very star-like and it was god guiding them to this place Uh, but ultimately i don't have the answers in regards to all that either Uh, i just want to highlight that this is also very interesting because jesus hasn't done anything yet so far right all he has done is be born and just by his birth we see that his existence is a threat to the king currently sitting on the throne in israel And it is an attractive thing to the Gentiles coming in. And so that's very interesting. Like Jesus, just by being born, is sending political messages. Verse three, and when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Rightfully so, right? Herod's a power-hungry dude. He hears that there's another king who is potentially the king of the Jews, and he views himself as the king of the Jews. And there can't be two, right? This town ain't big enough for the two of us. If one person claims to be the king of the Jews, and he knows that he has been placed here by rome and he is familiar with the old testament scriptures and the prophecies about them and then these gentiles come in saying hey we heard that the actual king of the jews has been born herod realizes this is a big problem for his kingdom but what he's going to do is he's actually going to portray himself like a devout religious person who wants to give credit where credit is due, and actually just worship this king and welcome him in. So he presents himself as if he's humble, but really he's not. Uh, And so what he does, he gathers together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he was inquiring them where the Christ was to be born. So he's familiar with the idea of the Christ, because whenever these magi show up and they say, hey, the king of the Jews has been born, he immediately makes the connection. He says, okay, if they're saying the king of the Jews has been born and they're not talking about me, They must be talking about the Christ. And so he's familiar with the idea that this is the Christ that we're talking about, and this is the man that has been prophesied for thousands of years by the Hebrew Scriptures. And so he gets together all of his smartest of the smart religious scholars and he says, hey, break it down for me. Where is this guy supposed to be born? He knows the Scriptures, but they know it better. And he says, is there anything in the Scriptures that tells us where exactly this Christ figure is to be born? And one thing I want to highlight before we even go beyond this is the duplicitous nature of Herod, but also the arrogance and the pride and the hard heartedness, because he does not simply think, oh, this is just some random guy. He hears the report of these magi and he comes to the conclusion that this king that has been born is the Christ, the long awaited, anticipated, anointed one of Yahweh, of God. And he says, I want to get rid of him. And he hasn't revealed his true colors yet he's going to act like he doesn't want to do that but just consider the pride and the arrogance that this guy has to have to think that he can outsmart god and overpower god's plans very arrogant and so these scribes they say to him in bethlehem of judea for this is what has been written by the prophet and you bethlehem land of judah are by no means least among the leaders of judah For out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. And so these guys, they say that they've been searching the scriptures, and they say, hey, in the prophet Micah, there is this prophecy where God says that the anointed one, the Messiah, will be born in the city of David, in the city of Bethlehem. One thing that Matthew does that's very interesting here is he actually changes the quotation ever so slightly. Because if you go look at the original quote in the book of Micah, Uh, in Micah chapter 5, it says, and you Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, who are small among the clans of Judah, right? The emphasis is that you are not even big enough to be counted amongst them, whereas Matthew quotes this and says, you are by no means least. And so whenever Micah is talking about Bethlehem, he's talking about the smallness of Bethlehem, whereas whenever Matthew has these people quoting it, they actually are emphasizing the prominence of Bethlehem. And I just want to argue that both of those things are true at the same time. Uh, on one hand, Bethlehem was never anything bigger than a super small town. If you were to go there nowadays, it's huge, but that's because a guy named Jesus was born there. But Bethlehem was always a very small and ultimately unimportant town other than the fact that it was also extremely prominent because a guy named David was born there, right? And so the very fact that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem immediately connected him to the legitimate line of of David. And so if Herod's hearing this, he's like, oh, this is like his worst nightmare. He is already so power hungry that he's been killing off his sons in order to stay in power. And now a legitimate heir born in the city of Israel's most famous king has been born in Bethlehem. And so Herod's gonna launch a he's gonna basically come up with a plan. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined from them the time that the start appeared. So you can see that he's trying to like form a plan. He's like, okay, when did this happen? When did this show up? How long ago did the star appear? How long have y'all been traveling? All that stuff. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. And so he tells them, hey guys, you know what? I know that I am the king, but this is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the guy that we have been longing for for thousands of years. Once you find him, let me know. I want to come pay homage to him as well. However, you can read through this, and you see exactly what he's doing, right? He's trying to determine the child's location. Now, after hearing the king, they went their way. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east was going on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So once again, you get the idea that it's almost like the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire guiding the people of Israel through the wilderness. They see this star-looking thing in the distance, and they follow it until it comes over the place where the child was at. And you get the idea that apparently a few years have passed, or maybe at the very least a few months have passed since Jesus was born, because now he's not just called a baby, he's called a child, Uh, and we're going to see that they're in a house. And when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy so i guess you get the idea that apparently they had been following the star for a bit and it led them to the land of israel and then it disappeared hence why they had to go ask about it but then whenever they saw it they rejoiced because they're saying yes it's here again and it guided them specifically to the place where the child was and after coming into the house they saw the child with mary his mother you can just imagine him right there with mary and they fell to the ground and worshipped him then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, this is really cool because Matthew doesn't quote it here, but this is also kind of the fulfillment of prophecy. Because here you have Gentiles, uh, Gentile kings from the nations coming to pay homage to the true king of Israel, right? This is something that you see throughout the Old Testament prophets. You have the image of all the kings of the nations gathering together to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to bring gifts to God and do gifts to his king that's exactly what's happening here and once again Jesus hasn't done anything all Jesus has done is be born and exist but even in his birth the Gentiles are coming together and they are responding properly to him but then having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod the Magi departed for their own country by another way Uh, And so, once again, here we have God revealing something in a dream. We see that dreams are extremely important throughout the Gospel of Matthew here, especially at the beginning. And so, they're given a dream, and basically, in this dream, they are told, Hey, Herod has ulterior motives. If you truly honor this king, do not go back and tell Herod about it. And so, they end up departing, they go another way, and they sneak out. Well, this is going to be a problem for herod right and so when they had departed behold an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream once again joseph getting another dream connecting him to the uh, character in genesis so that an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream saying get up take the child and his mother and flee to egypt and remain there until i tell you for herod is going to search for the child to destroy him right so probably a few months have passed at this point if not a few years and joseph receives this dream And shortly after the Magi disappear, Joseph is told, hey, Herod has heard news about this child being born. He feels threatened. He's going to try to hunt him down and kill him. Get up and flee, right? Get out of here. And so that's exactly what Joseph's going to do, right? So Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother while it was still night and departed for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. There's something very interesting that Matthew does here, and in all the commentaries I've read, uh, there's very few that have actually noticed this, but I think it is absolutely crucial in order to understand the message that Matthew is trying to communicate to his original audience. So see what Joseph does. Joseph gets up, he takes the child, he takes Jesus, and his mother, while it was still night, and they depart for Egypt. Right, so in the middle of the night they get up they leave and they leave israel and go to egypt and they remain in egypt until the death of herod the one who's seeking jesus life in order that what had been spoken by the lord through the prophet would be fulfilled saying out of egypt i called my son okay so this is where matthew once again quotes scripture and he says that they are fulfilling scripture in most commentaries that i read they quote this and they say see this is like a fulfillment of the fact that jesus went to egypt and he was called out of egypt in order to go to israel kind of like the people of israel fleeing um, from egypt during the exodus and don't get me wrong that is exactly what the original passage is about if you go to hosea chapter 11 this is god talking about him calling the people of israel out of egypt and a big thing i've been highlighting so far in this whole thing is that in the gospel of matthew he is communicating the fact that jesus is following in the footsteps of israel And so, you would expect that, just like Israel was called out of Egypt, so too Jesus would be called out of Egypt. But I want you to notice where we leave Jesus at in verses 14 and 15. Jesus has not yet returned to Israel. Instead, it is actually Jesus' leaving Israel and going to Egypt that Matthew cites as the fulfillment of being called out of Egypt, right? Out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, where was the Son of God just called out of? He wasn't called out of Egypt, he was called out of Israel and he was called to go to Egypt, right? In a few verses, they're going to talk about Jesus coming out of Egypt and going back to Israel, and that's where you would expect Matthew to quote this prophecy, but that's not what he does. Instead, he quotes the prophecy right here whenever Jesus is called out of Israel to go to Egypt. The message Matthew is communicating is that Israel has become the new Egypt, and if you look at the parallels, That's exactly what's going on here, right? Do you remember how the book of the Exodus started off? How the book of Exodus started out? It started off with a power-hungry king, Pharaoh, who felt his power was threatened, and so what he decided to do was try to kill a bunch of babies. Okay, well now what you see here is you have a power-hungry king called King Herod, and he feels his power is threatened, and so what he's about to do is resort to killing a bunch of babies. And so the prophecy that jesus is fulfilling is a reference to the exodus but ironically it's a brutal twist and it's a very dark sense of irony that instead of the people of israel being called out of egypt and going to the promised land ironically jesus the true israel is being called out of the promised land To go to Egypt because the Promised Land itself, Israel, has become the new Egypt. And Herod the Great, the King of Israel, has become the new Pharaoh. That's what Matthew's communicating. And once you understand that, you realize that this section is a brutal indictment against the people of Israel. And for the original Jewish audience who is reading this, they would have understood the message Matthew is communicating. He is warning them that belonging to Israel is not enough. In fact, if you want to truly belong to Israel, you have to get out of Israel and have a whole new exodus. Instead, you actually have to be like a Gentile king, a magi, who comes from the distance to honor the true king, right? But as long as you remain in Israel as it is, you will not be saved, right? It is not enough to be a child of Abraham. This is what John the Baptist is going to talk about in the very next chapter. It's not enough to be a child of Abraham. You have to live by faith. In order to be the true Israel, you have to escape the current Israel. That's what Matthew's communicating to his Jewish audience. And sure enough, that's exactly what we see. We see Herod living like the Pharaoh of old. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had carefully determined for the Magi. Right so he determined from the magi that the star had showed up less than 2 years ago so he has all of these children brutally killed in Bethlehem and all the surrounding regions just like the pharaoh did at the beginning of the book of Exodus right so Herod is the new pharaoh Israel is the new Egypt if you want to experience the salvation from God if you want to be freed from bondage you have to escape the current system of Israel and follow Jesus into the wilderness that is what Matthew is communicating here then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled saying a voice was heard in Rama weeping and great mourning Rachel weeping for her children and she was refusing to be comforted because they were no more and once again we're going to visit all these prophecies more in depth in the weeks to come but what he's quoting here is Jeremiah chapter 31 the chapter itself is not nearly as depressing as this one verse is this is probably the most depressing verse in the entire chapter But the image is that Rachel, the matriarch of Israel, right, um, she is weeping for her children because they are being slaughtered, right? Rachel was buried in Bethlehem, and Ramah was the surrounding regions of Bethlehem, right? So Jerusalem is about like five or six miles away from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem, there's all these other surrounding regions, including Ramah. Well, Rachel is buried in Bethlehem, and the idea is that Rachel refuses to be comforted to such a degree that even from her grave, she can't help but weep because her children are being slaughtered, and Matthew cites that this whole infanticide instigated by Herod is fulfillment of that prophecy, right? Israel is killing Israel, and Rachel can't help but weep because she sees that Israel has turned against itself, and it has become corrupt. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." Now this is the place where you might expect Matthew to quote the passage from Hosea, right? Because this is where he's actually being instructed, hey, get up and go out of Egypt and into Israel. And then you would expect him to say, this was done in order to fulfill what the prophet said out of Egypt, I called my son. But this isn't where Matthew quotes that. He quoted it earlier whenever Jesus was called out of Israel, right? And so it's very intentional what Matthew's doing here. Israel is the new Egypt and in fact you actually have this re-emphasized here because if you go compare verses 19 and 20 right here to exodus chapter 4 you'll see that this is almost it's very similar wording to the words that we read about moses whenever he fled from egypt and then once pharaoh died he got up and he returned right it says that the pharaoh that had pursued moses life if you remember the story of moses um he grew up in egypt and he killed an egyptian man because that egyptian man had been beating hebrew slaves egypt uh, moses flees from egypt he goes and dwells in the wilderness of midian for 40 years and then god encounters him at the burning bush he tells him get up and go to your people and it says that the pharaoh who sought your life has died therefore arise get your wife and your children and go back to the land Right? And so, you have that, like, that's what Joseph's doing. Joseph is walking in the footsteps of Moses right now, taking his mother and child and going back to Egypt. Ironically, Egypt, in this case, is Israel, right? And so you have this bitter, dark irony that the roles have been reversed. Israel is the new Egypt, and Jesus, in many ways, is the greater Moses. He escaped Egypt, and now he's going back into Egypt, now that the person who saw his life has died. Moses escaped the actual Egypt, and once that Pharaoh died, he went back. Jesus, he escaped Herod in Israel, and now that Herod has died, it's time to go back. And so the parallels here, if you just like see them, you're like, whoa, this is um, a, a brutal indictment against the people of Israel, and the Jewish audience would not have missed this, especially because the Exodus story was the thing that they studied the most of anything else. So Joseph receives another dream. He gets up. And he takes the child and his mother, and they came into the land of Israel. So they return. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So he realizes that Archelaus is now in charge, and you know what? Archelaus is not that much better than Herod. Uh, And keep in mind, Herod, during all of this, Herod was super sick and almost near death, this whole point. That did not stop Herod from being a power-hungry dude. Uh, Herod was just a nasty individual, and Archelaus was not much better. And therefore, Joseph's like, you know what? I don't really want to go back to that region. So, after being warned by God in a dream, look at that, once again, another dream. After being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the district of Galilee, And he came and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled he shall be called a Nazarene this last prophecy that Matthew quotes here is actually probably the trickiest one it's the one that scholars wrestle through the most uh, and that's because he's not directly quoting any particular prophet rather it seems like he is actually saying that this is an overall theology that is being promoted by the prophets notice that he says this was spoken through the prophets Plural. Whereas a lot of the other places, he's been saying this is fulfilled the word of the prophet, right? So he is saying that whatever this thing is about him being a Nazarene, it isn't just from one prophet. It is actually a theology that you get from looking at the prophet as a whole. And once again, we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. So there is the narrative itself. But now what I want to do, just to wrap up this video, is I want to do the same thing that I did in the last video, and I want to talk about two things. How Matthew presents Jesus as Israel, in this case. And then also how everything that Matthew is sharing in this chapter further authenticates the fact that Jesus is king. And what I want to do is really I want to recap what we talked about last week and put it with this one because really they go hand in hand. Right. So let's talk about Jesus as Israel. I think there are seven ways where we see that Jesus is really just basically following in the footsteps of the entire Old Testament story. Uh, in this these first two chapters, right? First off, his story begins with the birth initiated by the Holy Spirit, and we talked about this last week, how the word birth there, the first words in Matthew's narrative is Genesis, right? So his story begins with a Genesis that is initiated by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he is born by the Spirit of God, not by natural means, just like Adam, right? Adam had no father or mother. Jesus, in the same way, was born in a different way than every other single human being on the face of the planet. Thirdly, his miraculous birth was announced and accomplished to parents who had no business giving birth to a child like Isaac. These three things are all things that I addressed in the last video, but one thing I want you to notice is that they're working sequentially through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapters 12 through 21 with the birth of Isaac, and now look at how this chapter continues that same trend. Fourthly, he survives certain death thanks to a man named Joseph who receives dreams from God and goes to Egypt for the salvation of his family, right? That's what you see at the very end of the book of Genesis. You have the people of Israel being saved from destruction because of their, um, because of Joseph, right? Because of the one son named Joseph who bore the um, punishment that they deserved, right? Joseph is, the stepfather, the adopted father of Jesus, he is a righteous man, yet he willingly bears the reproach that comes with his wife having a virgin birth, right? And there's going to be all these questions that arise from this, but just like Joseph in the book of Genesis, he bears the reproach of his family, and he suffers on their behalf, and he follows the dreams that, like, He submits to the dreams that God's given him, and he bases his life on those dreams, and as a result, his entire family is spared, right? Joseph went down to Egypt, and at the end of the book of Genesis, you see that all of Israel is spared because Joseph was there, and Joseph became a ruler in Egypt. Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, is called the son of David. He himself is a ruler, even if he doesn't sit on the throne. And so you see that there are these parallels. You have a ruler named Joseph who receives dreams from God, who ultimately leads to his family's salvation and them being spared from the destruction because they went down to Egypt. Fifthly, Jesus' birth threatens the reign of a power-hungry ruler who kills infants in an attempt to preserve his own power. This is like both Israel and Moses that we see in Exodus chapter one and going into Exodus chapter two as well. Right? Israel itself became a threat to the power-hungry Pharaoh, and as a result, he decided to set in motion things to try to quench them, right? Firstly, he put them in slavery. Secondly, he asked the midwives to try and kill the babies before they were born. And then thirdly, whenever that those first two things didn't work out, he started having the kids thrown into the Nile. So the Pharaoh in the Exodus story, he started killing children, and that's very similar to what Jesus is going through. But not only is Jesus following in the footsteps of Israel, he's also following in the footsteps of Moses in this regard. Because guess what? Moses was one of those kids who was supposed to be killed, but he wasn't, right? And that was because he was ultimately the one to deliver the people out of bondage. He was the one who ultimately... Pharaoh was afraid of, right? Because God has sent Moses to deliver the people. And so you can see how there's a parallel, not only with Jesus being the true Israel, but in another sense, he is also the greater Moses. His birth threatened the reign of a power-hungry ruler who killed infants in an attempt to preserve his own power. That's Exodus chapter 1. So now we've moved into Exodus. Number six, he is called out of Egypt by God in order to escape the power-hungry ruler, like Israel and Moses. Firstly, let's talk about Moses, right? Moses was called out of Egypt, and he went to Midian, right? And that was because he was escaping the power-hungry ruler. Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses, and Moses escaped to Midian, okay? Jesus was being sought after by Herod, and he escaped to Egypt, right? He escaped from the metaphorical Egypt, which Israel has become. On the other hand, you also have him embodying the entire story of the people of Israel here, because Israel was ultimately delivered from Egypt through the events of the Exodus, and they ultimately made their way to the Promised Land, right? And that was because they were escaping the hardened heart of the new Pharaoh. And so Jesus is following in the same footsteps, and he is doing the same things, right? And so we keep track of these things. And then seventhly, he returns to Egypt after the power-hungry ruler dies to deliver his people from bondage, just like Moses, right? So where we left off at the end of Matthew chapter 2 is with Joseph, Mary, and Jesus heading back into the land of Israel, where Jesus is going to grow up into a man who ultimately delivers the people from their bondage. But this bondage is not a physical bondage. It's a spiritual bondage to sin. And we're going to see this at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Most of the indictments that Jesus has are against the religious leaders, right? So the people are being oppressed and they are in a greater form of bondage. But Jesus has arrived to give them rest. Hopefully this is setting up the things that we're going to see in Matthew's Gospel, right? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's pointing out that they are under a form of slavery and they are back in Egypt. Israel has become the new Egypt, and it is the legalism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and stuff that has become their new bondage. Sin itself is the bondage unto which they are bound. Jesus has come to free them. And so, just like Moses, who returned to Egypt to deliver the people, so too Jesus also returns to the metaphorical Egypt, which is Israel, in order that he might also deliver the people from their slavery. Right? And so there's just seven ways how, in these first two chapters, jesus is fulfilling the history of israel and he is embodying their history in his own life and as we progress forward we're going to see that he is going to play by play live out their history but where they failed he will succeed it shouldn't be a shocker where he's going to head next in chapter 3 guess what he's going to do he's going to pass through waters in order to go into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, just like Israel passed through the Red Sea in order to be tempted in the wilderness for 40 years, right? And so we see that these parallels are developing, and it seems very intentional on the part of Matthew. But let's move on, and there are ten things— I know this video has already been longer than I wanted it to be. That's okay. Let me talk about ten ways that the things that Matthew has shared in chapters 1 and 2 argue for the fact that Jesus has a legitimate claim to the throne. And this is in addition to the genealogy, right? I'm treating the genealogy as something separate. I'm just talking about what we covered in the last video and in this video. Ten ways that the Jewish audience that Matthew is writing to would have received this as proof that Jesus has a legitimate claim to the throne. Because I've argued that chapters 1 through 4 are all about authenticating Jesus. Firstly, his conception was miraculous. Secondly, his birth was announced by the angel of the Lord thirdly even in his birth he is living out the history of israel fourthly even in his birth gentiles come to pay homage to him that is super important right especially if you know your old testament theology of the messiah and your old testament theology of the messianic kingdom the fact that gentiles are arriving here to pay homage to jesus and he isn't even on the throne yet all he's done is be born yet they're coming and they are here to pay homage to him That sends a message, because that means that even the foreign nations are aware of the fact that he is the Messiah, right? They don't need Matthew's gospel to know this. All they needed was a sign from heaven that confirmed it. Fifthly, even in his birth, kings feel threatened by him. That's probably a pretty good way of demonstrating that this guy has a claim to the throne. He's a baby, yet the most power-hungry ruler that the people of Israel have probably ever known feels threatened by him right and so even in his birth before he's even done anything his birth sends a political message and it is toppling the kingdoms as they stand king herod goes into a fit of rage and murders infants he murders babies because he feels so threatened by the legitimacy of christ's kingdom right that's it really is amazing right because that means that herod he was so arrogant that he thought that he could oppose god's will but it also means that Herod thought Jesus had a legitimate claim to the throne, right? If Herod didn't think that Jesus had a legitimate claim to the throne, he would have totally disregarded the Magi's message. But the fact that the Magi traveled from all this distance to pay homage to him, and the fact that they had good reason to think that the Messiah was coming, this made Herod shake in his boots. And so Herod's own fury is a testament to the fact that that Jesus has a legitimate claim to the throne, and he hasn't even done anything yet. But in addition to these five, three things, you also have Matthew citing five prophecies that Jesus fulfilled simply in his birth. Prophecy number one, he was born of a virgin. Prophecy number two, he was born in Bethlehem. Prophecy number three, he was called out of Egypt. Prophecy number four, Rachel's children were killed, right? The weeping in Ramah. Prophecy number five, he was called a Nazarene. Right, So Matthew says, in addition to just the amazing things happening around his birth, even in his act of being born at the place where he was born and the events that followed and the events that preceded it, all of this is a fulfillment of prophecy, which further cements Jesus as having a legitimate claim to the throne. And keep in mind that all these 10 things are simply in Jesus being born. We have not seen Jesus do anything yet. That doesn't come until chapter 3 right? Which we're going to get to very soon. But just right here, we have 10 different things that Matthew has used to demonstrate that Jesus has a legitimate claim to the throne. He doesn't simply have the right bloodline. He has all the credentials he needs, even in his birth. Gentiles are flocking to him. Other kings are threatened by him. Angels are announcing him. Miracles are occurring. He is living out Israel's history. Prophecy is being fulfilled. All this stuff is happening just in Jesus being born. And if you're a Jewish reader who is reading this stuff, your interest is locked in because all of a sudden you're realizing that this Jesus guy might be the person they have been waiting for for thousands of years. And so all they want to do is go even deeper and learn more about this Jesus guy and to see what he's going to do. And that's what Matthew's going to get to in chapter 3. And we're going to get to that in a few weeks. But what I want to do next week is I want to actually dive deeper into Matthew's use of prophecy because there are some very difficult things that we need to work through in regards to the quotations that Matthew uses because I'm going to point out hopefully next week that uh Some of these things don't seem like overtly messianic prophecies, and it seems like, well, you have a lot of skeptics who will suggest that Matthew is forcing these. I don't think he's forcing them. I just think that he is being very careful and nuanced in the way that he's approaching them, and I think he's being very clever as well. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in, and I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.